Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. On Tuesday, March 7th, we saw oral arguments in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which kicked off after Grayscale and the SEC exchanged written briefs in the past months. And Donald Varelli Jr., former U.S. Solicitor General, who Grayscale hired last year as a legal strategist, kicked off the hearing. This podcast episode will dive into the Grayscale Investment Trust. We'll talk about the history and the background of this case, the reason why their application was denied by the Securities and Exchange Commission. We'll talk about the ETF redemption rights, and then we'll talk about the lawsuit and what we heard from oral arguments, as well as some feedback and thoughts from the industry on this case. I enjoy doing these. I find it's a good way to learn about a specific topic. If you enjoy it as well, please let me know, and hopefully we can do more of these going forward. So we'll start with some background. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust debuted as the Bitcoin Investment Trust on September 25th, 2013, as a private placement to accredited investors and later on received FINRA approval for eligible shares to trade publicly. So this meant that investors had access to buy and sell public shares of the trust under the symbol GBTC. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is now a digital currency investment product that individual investors buy and sell in their own brokerage accounts. GBTC had 14.5 billion US dollars in assets under management as of March 6, 2023, and was the first crypto product investors could trade in their brokerage accounts to get exposure to Bitcoin. GBTC was launched well before the approval of Bitcoin ETFs we've seen in Canada or Bitcoin future ETFs in the United States. Grayscale publicly filed for an ETF first in January 2017 when they sought to turn GBTC into an ETF, but they voluntarily withdrew the application in October of that year after the SEC indicated that it wasn't comfortable with the Bitcoin market. On January 21st, 2020, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust became an SEC reporting company when they registered their shares with the commission and designated the trust as the first digital currency investment vehicle to attain the status of a reporting company by the SEC. This allowed accredited investors who purchase shares in the trust's private placement to have an earlier liquidity opportunity as the statutory holding period of private placement shares would be reduced. Now, although the trust is not an exchange-traded fund itself, so it's not an ETF, Grayscale says it's modeled on popular commodity investment products like the SPDR Gold Trust, a physically-backed ETF. And I'll turn to Greg Exalis to discuss a bit more on Grayscale. With GBTC, they initially attempted to operate a system where they were having creations and redemptions of shares as well as a secondary market, which would allow the prices to tie together. However, the SEC basically came in and said, no, you can't 
have redemptions while you're engaging in an underlying offering. And the reason for that was that would be violative of rules 101 and 102 of something called Regulation M, which prohibits issuers and related broker-dealers involved in an ongoing distribution from participating in share purchases, or in this case, redemptions, of an asset that is being actively traded in a secondary market. So it's intended to be an anti-market manipulation rule, which makes sense in some circumstances. It doesn't really make sense from a policy perspective when the quote-unquote share repurchase is a redemption in kind at NAV for an underlying asset of a single commodity fund vehicle. So hope began to emerge in 2021. He was warming up to a spot Bitcoin ETF when it began approving ETFs that were based on the Bitcoin's futures products traded at CME Group. At that point, Grayscale decided to pursue the ETF, which would have been backed by Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin derivatives, which it would be for futures products. After the SEC approved ProShares futures-based Bitcoin ETF in October 2021, hope was high for Grayscale. But on June 29th, 2022, the SEC denied Grayscale's request to turn GBTC into an exchange-traded fund, and they wrote an 86-page decision letter, that is the SEC, citing concerns about market manipulation and a lack of adequate surveillance around the markets trading the underlying assets. Specifically, the SEC wrote that the applicants had not met their burden under the Exchange Act, so that's the 1934 Exchange Act, and the Commission's rules of practice to demonstrate that its proposal is consistent with the requirements of Exchange Act Section 6B5, which requires in part that the rules of a national securities exchange be quote, designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices and to protect investors and the public interest. And that was on page two of that decision letter by the SEC. They also explained in this letter why they granted this for ETPs, so exchange-traded products. And they said that these ETPs can meet the obligations under Section 6B5 by demonstrating that the exchange has, one, a surveillance sharing agreement that would assist in detecting and deterring misconduct, and two, it is unlikely that trading in the ETP would be the predominant influence on prices in that market. The surveillance sharing agreements have previously provided the basis for the exchanges that list commodity trust ETPs to meet those obligations, and the Commission has historically recognized their importance. So that's from the Commission on page five, and they continue to go on for multiple pages on the importance of these surveillance sharing agreements and their role in avoiding market manipulation. On page eight, they again look to Preston when they say, consistent with these statements for the commodity trust ETPs approved to date, there has been in every case at least one significant regulated market for trading futures on the underlying commodity. And the ETP listing exchange has entered into surveillance sharing agreements with or held intermarket surveillance group membership in common with that market. So it really does depend on this surveillance sharing agreement. In one of the footnotes, the commission explains referencing a 1994 release, which was an order approving listings of options on American depository receipts, that 
The commission stated that it generally believes that having a comprehensive surveillance sharing agreement in place between the exchange where the ADR option trades and the exchange where the foreign security underlying the ADR primarily trades ensures the integrity of the marketplace. The commission further believes that the ability to obtain relevant surveillance information, which includes the identity of the ultimate purchasers and sellers of securities, is an essential and necessary component of a comprehensive surveillance sharing agreement. On page 35 of their letter, the SEC explains that they don't agree with the idea that the inclusion of only certain constituent platforms provides significant protections against fraud and manipulation, as well as referencing that any insight or oversight afforded by FinCEN and NYSDFS, including AML and KYC or bit license regulation, is not a substitute for a surveillance sharing agreement between the exchange and a regulated market of significant size relating to the underlying Bitcoin assets. What the argument was by the applicant was that the approval of their proposal is consistent with Section 6B5 of the Exchange Act, particularly the requirement that the rules of a national securities exchange be designed to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices and to protect investors and the public interest. They assert that the proposal is consistent with 6B5 because Bitcoin offers novel protections beyond those that exist in traditional commodity markets or equity markets, and the proposal's use of the index represents an effective means to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices. In addition, they assert that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME, Bitcoin futures market is a significant surveilled and regulated market that is closely connected to the spot Bitcoin market, and that the exchange may obtain information from the CME Bitcoin futures market and other entities that are members of the ISG to assist in detecting and deterring potential fraud and manipulation with respect to the trust and the shares. And so ISG is that intermarket surveillance group that SEC had previously mentioned surveillance sharing agreements or membership of ISG was necessary. The applicants also argued that the proposal protects investors and the public interest because the exchange has in place surveillance procedures relating to trading in the shares and the proposal would promote competition. In their decision, the commission ultimately concluded that the applicant had not established that other means to prevent fraudulent or manipulative acts and practices were sufficient to justify dispensing with the detection and deterrence of fraud and manipulation provided by a comprehensive surveillance sharing agreement with a regulated market of significant size related to spot Bitcoin. They also concluded that the applicant did not establish that it had a comprehensive surveillance sharing agreement with a regulated market of significant size related to spot Bitcoin. The underlying Bitcoin assets would be held by the trust. The commission reiterated that the applicants have not met their burden to demonstrate that the proposal is consistent with the requirements of Section 6B5 of the Exchange Act. So that was the response from the SEC to the application. And within an hour of this news dropping that the SEC had decided to reject the application, the CEO of Grayscale tweeted that they had filed a lawsuit against the regulator. And sure enough, they filed a petition for review of the SEC's decision in the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. The basis of the lawsuit was that the regulator violated the Administrative Procedure Act and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 by not approving its product 
but previously doing so with the Tucrium Bitcoin Futures ETF, which was filed under the Securities Act of 1933. The Grayscale application was filed under the Investment Company Act of 1940. And the reason for ETF redemption is an important one. The shares of GBTC had been trading at a growing discount to net asset value, which was about 40% on Monday, March 6th. And the structure of the trust is such that the shares can't be redeemed. So although investors can buy shares of the trust, they can't redeem them back to Bitcoin. And this limitation has caused the fund to trade at a significant discount to the price of its underlying Bitcoin. Varelli argued that converting the trust to a spot-based ETF would unlock billions of dollars in value. And here's why. So in the case of a Bitcoin-backed spot ETF, the redemption process would typically involve the ETF issuer delivering Bitcoin to the investor in exchange for their shares. Here's how it might work. An investor decides they want to redeem shares in the ETF and places a redemption order with their broker. The broker then submits the redemption order to the ETF issuer, which begins the redemption process. The ETF issuer calculates the NAV or the net asset value of the ETF, which is the total value of the Bitcoin held by the ETF divided by the total number of shares outstanding. The ETF issuer then delivers the appropriate amount of Bitcoin to the investor's designated wallet address based on the number of shares being redeemed and the current NAV of the ETF in exchange for the shares of the ETF. The investor then receives the Bitcoin and can do what they like with it. It is worth noting that this process for redeeming shares in a Bitcoin-backed ETF could come with additional requirements or restrictions depending on the rules set out by the ETF issuer and any regulatory requirements. So now let's talk about the lawsuit and we'll go through the oral arguments. There's a link below in the show notes to start about 36 minutes in. And after the oral arguments were concluded, shares of GBTC rose as much as 16% with the discount to NAV narrowing during the hearing. So as mentioned, the oral arguments in front of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals kicked off on Tuesday. So the hearing started with Don Varelli Jr., the former U.S. Solicitor General, reiterating that the SEC's approval of ETFs investing in CME-traded Bitcoin futures but not for the proposed ETPs that invest in Bitcoin directly, such as what GBTC would convert to, is discriminatory. As mentioned, the crux of the SEC's argument was relating to market manipulation and fraud. And Chief Judge Srinivasan and Judges Naomi Rao and Harry Edwards of the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., asked the SEC senior counsel, Emily Paris, a number of questions about the agency's argument that Bitcoin future prices underlying futures ETFs were more resistant to manipulation than spot Bitcoin markets might be if a spot Bitcoin futures ETP or ETF was approved. The judge asked why there is a $4 billion gap between the value of GBTC shares and the underlying Bitcoin, and if an ETF would close it. Judge Rao asked a number of questions about future prices, contrasting with spot prices. Quote, it seems to me that what the commission really needs to explain is how to understand the relationship between Bitcoin futures and the spot price of Bitcoin. It seems to me that one is essentially just a derivative. They move together 99.9% .9 of the time. So where's the gap in the commission's view? In their response, 
Paris said that the 99% correlation does not equate to causation, saying that it only refers to once-a-day prices rather than intraday prices. In the SEC's opinion, she mentions that it is undisputed that spot markets for Bitcoin are fragmented in contrast to Bitcoin futures, which trade solely on CME. The Bitcoin spot markets are, quote, fragmented and unregulated, unquote, said Paris. And the CME is CFTC regulated, so they do have a surveillance sharing agreement that gives the SEC access to information like the market trading activity, customer identification we mentioned before, and these are tools to investigate fraud and manipulation. And Judge Rao actually interrupted Paris on that point, saying that the SEC needs to explain how it views the relationship between Bitcoin futures and the spot price of Bitcoin. Judge Rao added that the SEC has not offered an explanation why Grayscale is wrong as it relates to the relationship between the Bitcoin spot and futures market. The judge said that the SEC's ruling on a Bitcoin futures ETF by fund group Tucrium recognizes the futures prices are influenced by the spot prices. Quote, in approving the futures ETPs, it seems to be that the commission has to have necessarily drawn the conclusion that this arrangement would prevent fraud and manipulation on the underlying spot market, said Rao. An interesting point near the conclusion as well was the judge's question to the SEC, quote, if we were to agree with the petitioners, so Grayscale, would the commission look to approve spot ETFs or go back on its approval of Bitcoin futures ETFs, unquote. And the SEC lawyer said she can't say and quickly pivoted from the question. A final decision in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals could come by the fall of 2023, but the litigation timelines are inherently uncertain. I think it is important to recognize the way the questions were framed and the crux of the issues and how the judges were touching on those. It definitely was not a terrible outcome from Grayscale's perspective. And James Seyfert wrote a great thread and some highlights I wanted to touch on. He mentions Judge Rao is definitely Team Grayscale. And Grayscale needs to get Judge Srinivasan or Judge Edwards on their side as well, and they can win. Going into this, we knew Judge Rao, Republican, was likely to lean Team Grayscale, while the other two Democrats were far less likely. And James adds, Srinivasan seems to be leaning Grayscale as well, based on his line of questioning. The SEC lawyer seems to keep saying that futures aren't, and I quote, manipulated in the same way. And I don't even understand what she's trying to say. And back in January of 2020, James actually wrote that the SEC decision to approve 1940 Act Bitcoin futures ETFs pushed them into a corner. If they normally would have denied a futures ETF under the 19B4 process, I would argue denying these other filings opens them up even more to an APA violation. And that's the approach we're seeing taken here. Following the oral arguments, Bloomberg Intelligence's Elliot Z. Stein said, quote, We're changing our view now, and we think Grayscale is favored to win a ruling vacating the rejection order. Going into the argument, we thought the SEC was 60% favored, yet now we think Grayscale is 70% likely to win, unquote. So it does seem like people are leaning toward the Grayscale side, and I would say that the line of questioning touches on the issues Grayscale mentioned without providing too much leeway for the SEC. Many still think the case will come down to the doctrine of Chevron deference, which entails courts to give agencies like the SEC latitude to interpret statutes related to their expertise. So that is the expertise of the SEC 
And even though the Supreme Court recently reduced the amount of administrative deference, agencies like the SEC generally have a wide remit to interpret statute. And in this case, it is the Exchange Act of 1934, particularly, I believe, the important section will be 6B5. An important note was also made that even if the judges grant a victory to Grayscale and vacate the SEC's denial, which seems plausible now to some, there is a big if on how the judges handle it. And the SEC could again theoretically deny for different reasons. So a verdict will not necessarily be a win for Grayscale. It will just mean the SEC's denial is vacated. With no ruling for the Grayscale case expected for at least the next several months, the asset manager maintains that winning the lawsuit against the SEC is the best path for pulling many of its shareholders back to break even. It's been a rough year in the crypto markets, and news like this could be a sigh of relief for everybody in the space, uh, but it would be an important precedent going forward consider considering the SEC's continued rejection of spot Bitcoin ETFs. Again, this has been an overview of the Grayscale versus SEC case. I hope you enjoyed this. I wanted just to provide some background and explain what I've been seeing on this and what people have been saying on the case. I want to thank all the great writers. There are many sources for this, including Coindesk article, Blockworks article, the live audio itself, as well as a Yahoo article and tweets by many individuals such as James Seifert and Elliot Stein. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Again, please let me know if you enjoyed this. Until next time, thanks for joining us, everyone.